Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, regular listeners. You may have spotted that we've changed our name. It's now Honey & Co. The Food Sessions. So if you hear this sound, it's just us making dinner. Well... That and the fact that we're not allowed to use our old title anymore. It's just been a bit of a thing, but don't worry about it. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Sarit Becker. I'm Itamar Srulovic. Together we run a couple of Middle Eastern restaurants in London. And we also do our fair share of food writing. You're listening to Honey and Code where we take turns interviewing interesting people from the world of food in front of a small audience at our deli, Honey and Spice. In this series, we'll be meeting producers and makers who create some of the essential ingredients in cooking. The people you're going to hear from supply us, inspire us, improve our cooking and our life in general. We hope you enjoy and have fun geeking out with us about all things food. Enjoy! Enjoy! This evening we were joined by Ben McKinnon from E5 Bakehouse in East London in Hackney. It's a great bakery. It does everything from breads to breakfast to cakes and cookies. Absolutely fascinating place. Uh, we talked about sourdough, we talked about ancient grains, we talked about flour, about old processes, new processes. It's absolutely fascinating. It's the subject that I'm most passionate about. Have a listen. Ben started the bakery, or started baking bread at 2010. 11, initially delivering to 20 households using a friend's pizza oven, and then the business has grown. They now have three arches, and they're renowned for their sourdough. Please help me in welcoming Ben. Thank you. Itamar and I came not that long ago to, well, maybe, you know, in our life. We <laughs> very recent, I agree. Very recently yeah. to the bakery, and we had a walk around. But I don't know if anyone here has been, but for definitely people on the podcast, can you give us like a description of what's going on there? Okay. Well, as you mentioned, we're in several railway arches, and it feels a bit like uh, an Aladdin's den because you walk into a very small uh, front cafe, and beyond is the, the baker's oven to your left, behind a, a shelf filled with different breads. And uh, beyond that is the, the lunch kitchen. And further back still are the, the team of bakers making the bread. Um, so that's the, the original arch. And then running off on one side, we have a kind of hidden arch, which is where the, the cakes and the pastries are made. Um, and then to the right is our newest acquisition, the, the mill house, as we call it. And that's a kind of an arch that you can walk through. Um, it's got a big silo on one side, and it's got... A glass room with uh, a French stone mill 
which is purring away, grinding flour, and on top are more small hoppers, they're called, these stainless steel bins filled with grain. And around that you've got tables and chairs and a, a breakfast kitchen and a backyard full of trees and flowers where people can also spend time, especially at this time of year. Yeah, so basically you really want to go. And the only reason I don't go more is because I'm in South London and it like, takes forever to get there, but it's a really amazing place and kind of a hive of, of activity. And like you say, in the center of it is this, these kind of bread ovens and where people are mixing the doughs. And I want to start from the beginning, sourdough, how does this happen? Sourdough loaf. This, I think this sure. is your beautiful one that you're it's very famous beautiful. for. It's a beautiful. This is, this is uh, yeah, we're looking at the, a, a loaf called the Hackney Wild. Really good bread is made of flour, water and salt. And all of those things should be as well sourced as possible in order to make that bread. And then fermenting it is using natural yeast and bacteria. So what we have is uh, a leaven, a sourdough starter, which is simply a sort of batter uh, made up of flour and water. And within that are the, the wild yeast. So, so where does it begin? Well, it probably began as a sort of accident um, that some, somebody had a, a sort of a, a porridge in a, in a pot and it began to ferment naturally. So those yeasts and bacteria that are in there have all uh, arrived on the grain or in the air and they are specific to sort of fermenting flour. Do you remember what you, did you start your first ferment from just flour and water? Because ours, for example, in Honey and Smoke is started with organic raisins. Mm. So we make like a kind of organic raisin wine, we let that ferment, then we mix in flour. Yeah. So it's kind of got a bit of a, a tanginess, but did you start Indeed. with a plain? Well, we have, we have two, uh, starters on the go. We we did have two origins for the starters. Yeah. So, way back in uh, spring of 2010, I went on a short one-week course at the School of Artisan Food, and during that week, we started day one of five days. We we mixed our flour and water, and we did indeed put in some raisins. Yeah. Um, golden rule is after the five days, take your raisins out because if you <laughs> leave them in there for too long, they they get a bit it funky. Yeah. So we kept that and one going. And they have going. to be organic. Uh, no, of course, they have to yeah. be organic. Yeah, and don't use any sort of heavy-duty chemical sprays in your kitchen you know this is something so alive and uh, the other sourdough starter was given to us by a, a girl who popped into the bakery and she uh, she explained she was heading back to Sweden to see her family and could bring me a, a, a rye starter so we didn't have one at the time and I thought great and in due course she explained that that starter had a 200 year old history and you know their family have always remembered who it came from before them and this isn't uncommon you know theoretically starters can keep going Generally, when people think they're not doing too well, they've still got, you know, dormant yeast and bacteria that can be kick-started. You, ca you can bring them back to life sometimes. You can generally bring them back. Have you back, lost exactly. any of your strains from the start? Have you had to yeah, restart? Indeed, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So we're now dependent on that 200-year-old one, yeah. apparently. And who knows if it's 200 years <laughs> old, but it's a good story. Ours is just and, three years. And so just we... to dip into the science again, you know, what's going on with that flour and water? It's a little bit like if you imagine the, the grain of, of wheat getting water on it and beginning to germinate the young plant needs sugar to grow so there's enzymes within the endosperm the sort of uh, starchy powerhouse of the grain um, enzymes like amylase and maltase that begin to convert the starch into sugar and it's that that the yeast and bacteria feed on so one of the reasons it's called sourdough or the reason actually it's called sourdough is that the the bacteria lactic and acetic bacteria converting those sugars into organic acids and I don't know masses about the, the sort of health properties, but it's a kind of pre-digestion. 
um, a bacterial predigestion that happens very conveniently outside of our body and, and, and is therefore much better for us to, uh, to enjoy. So once you've taken this sourdough yeah. starter, you mix it into, I'm assuming, much more flour. We do. Uh, and then salt? Yeah, so the uh, simple process is generally at the beginning of the morning we'll refresh the, the sourdough starter. At the end of the day we'll refresh it again, we'll leave it overnight and now it's ready to go into the dough the next morning. Um, so the dough comes together and we, we spend five, six hours sort of allowing that dough to ferment and stretching it, shaping it um, and then putting it into usually a, a banneton but in the case of this loaf here, we're, we're kind of free-forming it in a couche, this kind of uh, flowered linen that allows the, the dough to rise. And then we, we do a retarded fermentation. So it's not essential, but the different types of bacteria favor different sort of environments. So acetic bacteria favors the cold. So we put them in at about five or six degrees. By That's retarded, you mean slow, because you, you may have to explain to some exactly, people that exactly. don't do That's baking. That's it. So, so, so retarded fermentation, bit of a techie word, just throwing it out there to sort of feel like we're <laughs> a, bit more, like, a bit more professional. And that means we can all go to bed. And if you're making sourdough at home and you aren't, haven't come across this use of the fridge, it, it changes everything. It allows a lot of flexibility in your sort of bread making process. Yeah. And you don't add I, I, any additives or uh, preservatives? Well, Do you have any razor, you know, assisted raising agents, anything like that in your breads? No, we don't. The, the bakehouse and sort of my entry into it was founded on sort of how to put the ethics that I wanted to work within and, 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 and devote myself to into practice. So I'd worked within um, natural resources management and sustainability for a long time and I saw and found bread as a really direct route to applying that. But for example, we deliver by bicycle, we use renewable energy and then our ingredients can be as ethical as possible. So we, we started using organic flour milled in Essex, which was is 20 or so miles away from the bakery. So job done on that front let's kind of get on to other things and as we inquired a bit about where the flour came from um, we began to discover that it it wasn't as straightforward as it seemed so 80% of organic flour used in the UK comes from overseas um, typically Kazakhstan or the Ukraine Canada um, Germany am I getting ahead Is this no no you you're getting ahead but it's a very important yeah. point and it's fine because it, I'll ask it, you about it it's anyway gonna, it's going to come back around to to kind of what you asked about additives so so no but I think that this fact about so much of the flour being imported is a huge thing that people aren't aware of uh, in this country and really a place should have pride in its own growth or what it can produce and I think well, part of the reasons I think where some of the allergies are coming through and stuff like that is by using flowers that aren't so local to here. Well, indeed, yeah. Well, that's, that's what I asked. I said, so why can't we use the British flower? And they said, it's not good for bread. It, you know, we, British flower doesn't make good bread. I thought, well, really? You know, surely I, I grew up in the, in the in, surrounded by fields, actually, in a county called Suffolk. And I was, I was a bit baffled. So we did the obvious thing and we, well, to us at the time, which was buy a small flour mill and uh, some grain from a organic farmer and try it. And Wait, I'm going to interrupt him again, but when Ben says it was natural to him, when we came to the bakery, Freitamang and me, our mind w was blown because it would be like my biggest dream to be able to, I've stopped eating flour actually as, as my day to day because I've developed so many like allergies to it only in this country. When I go back home to Israel and I eat the local bread, I'm completely fine. And we've traveled all around the Middle East and I'm completely fine with bread there. As soon as I eat bread in this country, 
I react really badly to it. So I've completely stopped eating it here. And when we saw the mill and these, uh, we'll talk a bit in a, in a bit about these original grains, but all this aspect of being able to use grains that were local and I straight away want to test it on me and see if it makes me, you know, feel bad. Everything we bake today, by the way, is from different kind of grains, which we'll yeah, discuss we'll in a talk, second. Talk yeah. Yeah. E5 has been a big part of, of the sourdough revival and it has had a revival because when I first moved here, I don't remember seeing sourdough mm. anywhere really. And now it's pretty much everywhere and most places try and make their own and stuff like that. But can we talk a bit about why it went out of fashion or why people stopped selling it as such? I mean, there's been two ways of leavening bread historically. There's been using a sourdough leaven and there's been using the balm from beer. So, you know, if you happen to be in a place that makes a lot of beer, often the, the balm was scooped off. And the alternative is, is the leaven approach, which happened a lot more in France, for example. My understanding is where we really began to industrialize bread. I mean, sourdough had lost its sort of uh, dominance for, for, you know, a good 100 or 200 years, really, in the UK. But it was around World War II when we had you know, such food poverty that all the investment, all the advice, all the sort of government agencies were looking to reduce food costs and, and make things, make food more affordable to the general public. Um, and that coincided with a process called the Chorleywood bread making process, which was the mechanization and industrialization that saw the ability to make loaves in less than an hour from start to finish. And these were the sort of uh, squishy, plump, you know, deliciously white sort of uh, wrapped loaves that, that, you know, there's nothing as good as sliced white. Um, it came at a time of an agricultural revolution off the back of, of, of the, these great wars where the chemical industries that had been making the chemicals for the bombs now understood that the, the very same things were, could be used to grow food in far greater volume. So we, we suddenly had this sort of, a, we were awash with these higher yields. We had this sort of... Um, industrial method of making bread and and the market was just flooded with incredibly cheap bread that kind of hit a lot of you know the, the sort of points that people were looking for you know it was sugary it was white it was cheap, cheap which fundamentally is probably, you know, you know uh, the main cost P people have often said over the years like oh you're spending more on your flour it's like well the cost isn't you know when you're making artisan bread the cost isn't necessarily in the flour it's much more in the other parts, particularly the labour. The labour, the time yeah, as well, time, everything like time, that. Yeah, the time, the space, that's it. And then, there's, like I said, there's been this changeover and or revitalisation, I can't say the word. Revitalisation. Exactly, or re that's, you know, yeah. good. <laughs> well, let them talk from now. I think it's a revival. Revival, yeah. yeah. Of sourdough. And so what do you think has caused that on the other side of the... Well, E5, as I say, sort of kicked off around 2010 and you know I was living in Hackney and built this clay oven in, in a railway arch and people were really excited and you know this coincided with the big economic recession that we had you know off the back of 2008 and I think it was a time when people were going hang on you know it's not all about spending money spending money buying you know going, going on fancy things you know, what's real what's tangible and a loaf of bread really symbolizes that, I think. So, so that was one reason. I think as well in the UK, we've been getting more and more food conscious and considering these supply chains, considering the quality of food. And uh, Also, there's a lot more pride in, in making, isn't there? In like... The craft. Taking a, yeah, in, in craft, craft in general. It. I think there's a lot more interest in people producing pots and, uh, you know, 100%. everything like that. And, and food, in a way, becomes part of that. And the community where E5 is, we're very supportive of 
um, seeing something being made within the community, that sort of direct supply chain where they could feel that where they were putting their money was you know, within the community and they were supporting something small scale um, and, and that was making a product that, however good it was, it, the people who were making it really, really care about it and uh, you know, are invested in it and passionate about it. So, How many loaves do you, would you think you kind of make in a day at E5? It probably changes quite a bit during the week, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, between Monday and Friday, it, you know, it doubles. So we make 500 on a quiet day and 1,000 on a busy day. Wow. Yeah. It's a, a fair bit of bread, isn't it's it? It's a fair bit of bread, yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know, it's it's uh, it's also not, as I mentioned, we only deliver by bicycle. We've, yeah. we've managed, to, we haven't changed our production for about five years, really. So we're just sort of staying at that uh, level. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And then let's go back to this original grain and your interest in it, because you've kind of taken this even a step further and you've actually taken a small holding where you, where you grow some of the things. Mm. And again, this is something that I'm completely fascinated by. So how did all of this come about? I guess it was something dormant inside me that I was like excited to do and um, began to sort of have a feeling that that's, that was the next step personally and for the company as well, it, it, one of the sort of avenues that the company was taking. To go back to the sort of sourcing the UK wheat. So we, we went to these farmers and we said, can we get some wheat? And we began to play with it. And then we learned that there was modern wheat and old wheat. So the modern wheats, in a simple way are uh, very short yeah so they were developed around this 
time of this agricultural green revolution in the, the 40s, 50s, um, a guy called Norman Borlaug, who is very famous in the sort of crop breeding world, and he developed this very short wheat, which meant that when you applied nitrogen and other fertilizers that caused the old wheats to grow even taller, and then they would surely fall down in the field in any wind and rain, these short ones stood up to it. We saw much more ownership of seed around that time, um, to the point that you know, a handful of companies, as probably the audience know, um, you know, dominate the, the supply and, and sale of seed and its development. So in the UK, if you're an organic farmer, you choose from, say, three varieties of wheat to grow, milling wheat. And every year or two, a new one will come on and one will go off the list. And you tend, farmers tend to keep up with the latest stuff because it offers a bit of better uh, disease resistance against fungus or pest or, or uh, competing plants and so on. But when you're not using chemicals in a system, for example herbicides, the competition from weeds is that much more. And so these short weeds are actually at a major disadvantage because the competing weeds um, grow up above them and, and shade out the light, or rather the, the wheat doesn't shade them out, so there's a lot more competition. At um, the same time, we're not applying fungicides, so you know, if there's genetic diversity, great, but if there's not, if there's just one or two species, these funguses spread around and decimate the, the crops. So we quite quickly saw, well, this, is, this is, doesn't make a huge amount of sense. Um, and so we began to, to meet characters like Andy Forbes of Brockwell Bake, um, who were, in Andy's case, he's growing a bunch of heritage wheats on an allotment in Brockwell. Um, and, and, and when he finds ones that make good bread, and this, this guy was a pioneer on the London bread scene. I mean, he was peddling his breads around uh, Brixton you know, 10, 15 years ago. Really great sourdough. Um, so when he found a good one, he began to go out to farmers and ask them to grow it. And he's still, still doing a lot with the Brockwell Bake Association. So he, we'd spend time in the pub and I had no idea what he was talking about, especially after two or three pints. But something, a seed was, you know, germinated within me. And uh, it just felt intrinsically right. And so about seven, eight years ago, six, seven years ago, a group of us bakers from E5 went to Denmark. And an uh, old friend of mine, his, his cousin's a chef, and she arranged a kind of tour for us. And um, this old friend's father is a, a, an organic farmer there. So as part of the tour, we got to meet, we got kind of connected with this guy called Per Gruper. Um, he had an, he has, uh, or had an Irish guy working with him, running the the farm they have. So we we turned up one morning, and he said, "Okay, guys, we've got ten different wheats we've been growing here, and we're going to mill all of them, and you're going to make bread with it." We didn't know anything about this. We were only there for a couple of days. So we spent the rest of the day making bread with these different old varieties of wheat and. We put them to, to prove overnight and we came back the next morning and baked them. And we did a load of fun, other fun stuff. But it was somehow a, a pivotal moment and it was around the time of, of getting a little bit of land in Suffolk. So we said, Pear, can we have some of your wheat? And he said, yes. So he sent us some 500 kilos of lease brun in the post. And, uh, and yeah, we put it in, a local farmer planted it in our field and it was the first crop that worked. So the first year we grew oats and it turns out there's such a thing as hulled oats and naked oats and we grew the, the hulled ones which are the best for porridge but there's nowhere that does small-scale de-hulling so I did finally find somebody but we only got like 85% of the hulls off and when you eat a bowl of porridge with 15% hulls you don't want to do it the next year we grew a modern wheat and it was it, it, we had a disaster with it so you know this wheat worked really well and so we it's a lot of playing yeah. around isn't it playing around, I think the, the best flower I've had was from Denmark actually I wonder if it's the same guy I can't remember the name because I'm really bad at it. 
but anyway it was amazing organic flower really beautiful so there's also advantages to the soil though isn't there in planting different varieties of wheat and rotating things around in terms of giving some nutrients back are you doing any crop rotation on your small holding anything like that yeah indeed absolutely i mean one of the other striking things about these heritage varieties is a often called, which are these sort of tall straw wheats, is corresponding to their height, they have equally deep roots. And so those deeper roots can scavenge and draw up things that the, the shorter plants couldn't do. So they're, they're much more robust, they work well in these systems. So there's, there's a few things that I'm really excited about at the moment. There's a movement in France called the Boulanger Paysan movement, which I think you'd be interested to hear about. It's um, In France, the rules to be a baker are very strict. You have to go to, to bakery school for something like seven years, and then often you have to take over an existing bakery, and that bakery will be tied to a mill. It will be in a kind of tie to this mill, which sucks if you want to do something a bit punk. So there's this kind of alternative group called Boulanger Paysan, and they have got around this by growing the wheat that they use in their bread and they in turn mill it. So a pioneer of that, Nicolas Hupio, I've spent some time l- learning with him. A short, short, He runs courses, so I did a course with him. And uh, he takes you into the fields. And one system he has is that he grows uh, camelina, which is uh, it's called the weed of wheat in Scandinavia, okay. where it, it is a kind of weed of wheat. Uh, it's a brassica, it makes an oil, camelina oil. There's a company called Hobmadods who... Uh, have been featured on this podcast before and they actually sell the camelina seed it's amazing in crisp breads if you or, or any bread but particularly in crisp breads it brings a really interesting sort of nuttiness so he grows the camelina and he be, grows field beans as well which he feeds to the the cattle who are kind of part of his integrated system that's something i really want to try because what he does does is he doesn't rotate by having the camelina and the, the peas, same time he can he, they all mature at the same time and he can plant the same thing the next year and maybe every four or five years he has a fallow year and he goes back in He's a big believer, he has a lot of oak trees around his um, farm, you know, his forest or whatever. Which leads me on to this other method of farming, which is is really gaining traction, it feels now. You know, DEFRA are beginning to look at it as a, a sort of option for funding in, in the future, sort of in the future. Agroforestry, so what we're doing is putting a lot more trees into the arable context. So we're, we're planting avenues of trees, and then we have alleys of crops. And that brings a lot of benefits. So that's like heavy-duty companion planting. The, uh, it creates a microclimate, so you get less sort of uh, disruption from, from wind. It stabilizes rainfall, so rather than having kind of floods or droughts, it, it regulates that much better. Of course, the leaves add organic matter, and the roots bring up nutrients from, from below. Um, it buffers pests and diseases and adds a lot of biodiversity. And on some of the fields that we're managing we're looking this autumn to start planting and probably do it incrementally over the years and the kind of species we're looking at are um, walnut and cobnut so then you could also use all of those in the the bakery as well and potentially into planting with flowers like lavender but you know early days but that's that's one thing the more traditional organic rotation or, or traditional rotations are sort of um it's broad beans isn't it beans, a lot of beans exactly and you go beans for beans to, to bring the nitrogen with the roots and then barley and wheat and so on but you know really the the more diverse and the longer the rotations the better or unless you know there's this model that i've yeah. suggested one of the motivations for you know, having a go at farming, let's say, is because it's on micro scale. It's just to be able to stand in the field and have those conversations with the farmers yeah. and, and feel a little bit like we're kind of cutting our teeth and, and learning firsthand how to do things. We certainly aren't, you know, uh, doing the whole lot. We work with a lot with contractors 
and also we're commissioning more and more farmers to grow varieties on our behalf. So for example, the wheat in, in this bread here is made up in part of a variety called Oland, which is perhaps the one that you tried in, in Denmark before. Originally, it was found, a lot of these old wheats were kind of found, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure this one was found in a suitcase or something, <laughs> in, a, in, in an old sauna, um, and uh, on an island called Oland off, off Denmark. <laughs> I don't know. What do you think people, regular people, consumers can do to encourage more of this exploration of grain to, is there anything that can be done properly by people? How can we avoid supermarket mm. full of additive flowers? Mm. Mm. What's the way forward for us? Well, personally, we're, we're at this sort of um, major occasion, I feel, in, in humanity's history where we're, you know, especially, you know, in London, we're really uh, opening our eyes to how quick the effects of climate change are likely to be felt and how rapidly biodiversity is depleting. Um, so from an e ecological point of view, I feel like we need to be making the point for our food choices. Farmers have been disregarded and disengaged for so long. Like wheat is a commodity that comes off the farm in 29 ton lorries and goes, you know, they don't know where. And I feel like by reviving their sort of spirit and engaging them in the process, it's really exciting. So really it's about shortening supply chains. You know, there's a handful of mills in this country. There used to be tens of thousands, you know. Of course, there's, there's pros and cons and arguments for, for both, but, but personally I feel that by shortening supply chains we have a lot more traceability, a lot more handle over it, and there's a lot more sort of good feeling and engagement within that chain. And the flowers are, they're different, they react differently. So I've baked quite a bit of stuff today and tried to keep it into a bit of different things. I've used two types of flour from Ben. One is Edgar. Mm -hmm. Tell us a bit kind of on the, the variety, what is, where mm. is it from, mm. what is it? Sure. So uh, that, that egg of flour is farmed by a guy called John Turner in uh, Northamptonshire. Um, so it's a small, uh, also organic farm. He has a bit of cattle uh, in the rotation. The Edgar is, I think, a wheat from about the 1970s. So it's not a, a classically an old variety, mm -hmm. but uh, pastry, yeah, becomes a pastry flour. And, and yeah, well, I, I made the, just, I the shortbreads with it oh, today, yeah. awesome. which you're going to try a bit later. And I made the batter for the chicken with it. The difference between a pastry and a bread flour is largely in protein content. So when we talk about proteins in flour, we're, we're largely talking about the gluten. You talked about uh, reactions to flour. What wheat breeders have been focusing on over the last 70 years or more is gluten uh, to a large degree as well as yield but gluten has been a big thing and the the range of glutens has really narrowed so glutens are made up of gliadins and glutens there's hundreds of them but that spectrum has really shifted um, so the modern wheats tend to be in a very narrow spectrum the, the older wheats are much harder for bakers to work with uh, to achieve the kind of results they might be aiming for or have expected so in order to shift to this you know to using the kind of wheats that I believe are important for our sort of ecosystem. It takes a bit of rethinking what the loaf should look like and how it should behave, but it's fun, you know, it's really fun working with that flour. And when we're stone milling, we're, uh, we're not stripping away the germ, which is the, like the yolk of an egg, for example. So the, the germ in, in the wheat grain contains all of those oils and vitamins and minerals that the, the baby plant needs. Um, in roller milling, which is where all of our flour generally comes from, that germ separated because it can go rancid, it's sort of alive. 
Um, and we also get the particles of bran coming through depending on the sieve size so, uh, and the type of mill being used. Um, but the, the, the pastry flour, yeah, it's, it's largely the, the, the protein content and the types of protein being used. Are any of these breads made with it or are they all No, uh, so they're stronger? made, well, largely, yeah, we've got a rye bread, um, that, that sort of oblong tin loaf with uh, sesame seeds is a, a Danish rye um, with walnuts and some treacle and so on in. And then we've got the Hackney Wild and the Stockholm. Both are actually made with uh, the same mix, but just cooked in different ways. So the Stockholm's cooked in a hotter oven and it's, it's not shaped. Uh, it's, it's kind of cut as a free-form loaf and then uh, loaded off the peel into the oven. Um, but the, the Stockholm and the Hackney Wild have three types of flour. They have the Orland, which came from Scotland the Bread. Scotland the Bread is an initiative set up by Andrew Whitley, who uh, I know I'm probably overloading you a tiny bit now, but just, just hear me out for one last thing. So <laughs> Andrew Whitley is this uh, guy who set, started the Real Bread campaign, um, which uh, check it out if you, if you have time. It's a fantastic um, organization, a bit like the, the campaign for Real Ale. And it's, it's doing its best to promote and, uh, and, and challenge the sort of uh, anti real bread campaign you know that, that supermarkets and the like might might begin to prophesize so Andrew Whitley had a, had a bakery in North in the north of England and, and more recently a bread school in the borders of Scotland and he's now sort of championing and growing old varieties of wheat that used to be grown in Scotland Scotland doesn't grow any of its own bread wheat none yet it grows tons of wheat and by changing things and growing the wheat there and having smaller bakeries there'd be a huge economic shift up there you know so that's that's one of the things he's to, doing. Yeah. It's interesting to see where it all goes. The mm -hmm. the second flour I used was the Lis, Lis, the Lisbrun, yeah. which I made the Danishes that you ate earlier with the uh, butternut and feta, and then the little kind of mini date and orange cakes with a bit of marzipan that you will eat for dessert. It's interesting. I love this. I love seeing it reacts completely differently to what our regular we use a uh, Shipton Mill strong flour as our kind of milk bandeau. And here I've done two things that are quite different with it and it reacts very differently. And I love that. I think it's part of the enjoyment is playing with those kind of things. You teach a lot of people how to bake as well. No, you have courses That's in right. E5. Yeah, we, yeah. We, we started teaching just you know, inviting people into the bakery and sharing what we're doing early on. Yeah. Guys, you should go. If you want to see more information about E5 Bakehouse, check it out online. Amazing website. It's yeah. really interesting. I, I don't want you to downplay your flour. I mean, Shipton Mill is a really great mill. Um, they, they started off, uh, John Lister, who started it, took over a, a defunct mill in uh, Gloucestershire, an old stone mill, in fact, yeah. and got it going again. No, I think, and, it, actually, and, I think and, it's, and, a, it's and, a very you good, know, they, you know. They, and they're very forward thinking as well and, yeah. and so on. So they're, they're definitely on the right side and it's great, great flour. I mean, with the, with the Lisbrun that you've, you've used there, that is an older variety and that's the one that Pear sent us from Denmark. Mm -hmm. and, and I kind of asked about the origins of that and it, it came out of some... Sort of, it's, it's a combination of several different plants. It's not just one species. There's a number of different species within there, and they look stunning in the field, guys. I can't tell you, like, you know, compared to a field of modern wheat, which is so sort of at this time, a month or so ago, that it looks so weird and blue in the field, and then it just it just looks like a like what it is, a monoculture. This field is it has the the spiky awns on the wheat, a lot of them, and some are a bit shorter, some are a bit taller, some have droopy heads, some stand up straight. You know, there's relatives of spelt in there, much more close to spelt. It's stunning, you know. Um, they sing when they're beginning to ripen. They sort of crackle. And 
Uh, anyway, but the thing about the least bread I wanted to say is it's, it does have you know real depth of flavour to it. It's something really quite remarkable. The flavour is amazing. The stretch is different, and the I stretch think is that's, very different. Yeah. Th- that's an interesting thing to to play around with. Yeah, yeah but indeed. you shouldn't be scared of it. Your bread shouldn't always like have like all the same elasticity. It's, it does different things. That's it. That's it. It's fascinating. I can go on for hours. I'm not going to go on for hours. But let's thank Ben. Thank you so much for coming and talking to us. so much for listening to our latest episode if you'd like to join one of the next talks please follow us on social media at honey and co or go on our website honeyandco.co.uk we would really appreciate if you took some time and rated us at itunes only five stars please with a huge thanks to hester camp for producing a special thanks to our own louisa cornford for her wonderful research and the music is by the lovely alice russell thanks for listening Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 